want to thank you all for joining us here on AutoLine this week because we got a terrific special guest, Raj Nair, the group vice president of all product development for the Ford Motor Company, somebody who spent time in Europe and Asia as well as here in North America. I'm sure we'll have a lot of great stuff to talk to, but Raj, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And helping me extract information out of him are two of my colleagues, Tony Swan with Hearst Magazines and Mark Phelan with the Detroit Free Press. Great having the both of you here, too. Thank you. Thank you. Raj, we have so much different things that we can talk about, but one I want to start out with is we're seeing automakers really start to put an effort into making their cars lighter. If they're lighter, they ride better, they handle better, they go faster, they stop sooner, and of course they get better fuel economy. Ford's announced that it's going to do structural carbon fiber in its cars in a big way with the uh, Dow Chemical Company. Can you give us some idea what, what kind of applications, how big is this going, where are you going with all this carbon fiber? Yeah, we just uh, announced a joint agreement with Dow on carbon fiber, and uh, it's really holding a lot of promise. And uh, clearly as a material, it's been used in racing for a long time, used in, uh, in the aerospace industry for a long time, so a lot of advantages relative to the structural strength and the form you can make into it and really providing strength in a very directional way. So there's a lot of applications in, in the, the car that would equally serve um, really uh, IP cross-car beams, um, exterior panels, structural panels. Uh, but the key is really to get the manufacturing cost down so it's viable for, for the automotive industry. Uh, paying it for it in aerospace or paying for it in racing is one thing, uh, but mass-producing carbon fiber is another. So that's really the focus of our project with Dow right now. Can you give us any indication of how you're figuring out how to make it uh, affordable for the rest of us in the world, not just the military or the, the racing car people? Well, we're looking at the total manufacturing process, but certainly the materials going in and the precursor, the actual material that you make the fiber out of, is a real focus for us. And Dow brings some really great expertise in that area. So we're really excited about working with them on the project. Ford has said it's got to take out an average of 750 pounds from its vehicles. As you well know, in this industry, everyone fights over every single gram. I, I, I almost don't see how you can pull 750 pounds out of a vehicle. Well, we've got a lot of new tools available to us, um, both in the computer-aided engineering analysis tools that we have, um, some of the new materials that we're talking about, whether it's uh, new high-strength steels, boron steels, increased use of aluminum, carbon fiber, um, some other areas, uh, combining function of parts. So when we do cross-car beams, maybe incorporating the vents into them as well. So there's a lot of areas that are still an opportunity. And um, we're really using Colin Chapman's phrase of we need to really add some lightness to these vehicles. So. Simplicate and add lightness. But what is that going to do to cost? I mean, all of this stuff that you're talking about really adds expense. And uh, are consumers going to accept that? Well, I think right now we're in a, a pretty good phase where consumer behavior around fuel economy is actually probably outpacing regulatory requirements. And so that is driving consumers willing to pay for really good fuel economy vehicles. And with fuel prices as, as they are right now, some good paybacks on that. And, uh, you know, as John mentioned, it's one thing to pay for engine technology. But if you can lighten the vehicles, there's so many other benefits for that as well. But don't you see this uh, uh, correlation that's been going on forever, even, you know, in an era of $4 a gallon gasoline where fuel prices come down a few cents or they get down below $4 and pickup sales immediately, full-size pickup sales, you know, uh, rise. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, there's still the utility of the pickup that you can't get away from, and certain customers just need that utility. And they can make some short-term decisions about the fuel economy and what the, you know, fuel prices are. Um, but if they really need the utility, they're eventually going to, 
go for a full-size pickup. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't offer some really great fuel economy in the fuel-size pickup. And when we were going through the EcoBoost strategy and, and working out what turbo direct injection engines could get for us, we really went through a big debate about, is that pickup customer really going to accept a V6 turbocharged direct injection engine? And I think the success of the EcoBoost says, if they can get the utility and they can get the power and the torque and get fuel economy on top of it, they absolutely will accept that type of engine. Well, and when you talk about new materials for, for reduced weight, you're talking about across the whole vehicle line, I assume. It's not just sports cars you're looking at for carbon fiber. The next F-150 could have some of it as well because you need to, to save weight everywhere. No, it's absolutely, it's across the entire vehicle lineup. And uh, the benefit is universal, um, but the fuel economy requirements obviously go across the whole fleet. And so the advantages will be used across all the vehicle lines. Have you got a horizon for when you'd like to be able to get some structural you know, carbon fiber pieces into a, a mass? Yeah, it's a bit early in the project to be talking about you know, when we really start utilizing it in production, but we've got some you know, near-term horizons within the business plan period. We'd like to get it in production. Well, would that ramp up uh, correspond pretty closely to the uh, mandated requirements uh, in uh, fuel economy, uh, CAFE? Well, certainly there's a tie-in of, of the emphasis on light weighting with the ramp-up in the requirements. So it's a, you know, it's a direct correlation to having to deliver the fuel economy, reducing the weight, uh, improved engine technologies with those requirements. Well, Ford's been very uh, aggressive about moving towards smaller engines as well, as you pointed out with the V6 EcoBoost. Is there a downward limit to how small an engine you, you think uh, an American customer will buy? Well, I... I don't think, um, certainly from the engineering side, you never say never to an engineer. And so we're, you know, continuing to bring out technologies that really uh, change the, the limit of um, what's acceptable in any of the vehicle lines. And I think our one liter EcoBoost that we just rolled out in the Focus in Europe is a great example of that. And that's really getting great consumer acceptance. And again, that was a little bit of a debate, is the consumer going to accept a one liter engine? I think consumers are increasingly not looking at displacement, but looking at performance and uh, looking at the horsepower numbers, the torque numbers, and the fuel economy numbers. And as long as they're convinced that they can get that in a reliable fashion, uh, often based on the reputation of the manufacturer, I think they are willing to accept that. Do uh, diesels figure into that plan uh, down, the, down the pike? Um, Passenger I, car diesels. I think the diesel uh, technology has certainly advanced a lot, and the common rail diesels we have in Europe are, are great engines to drive and great vehicles to drive. Uh, the emissions requirements are a little bit different between Europe and North America right now. And the amount of emissions uh, equipment, particularly the after-treatment that we need to put in into a diesel in the U.S., really make the payback unattractive for the North American customer, particularly with diesel and, and gasoline prices pretty close to equity. Right but but not, not necessarily if you keep it uh, a two-liter or smaller diesel. Because we see uh, companies like Volkswagen introducing two-liter diesels that don't have the little chemical plant under the car to clean up the emissions. And certainly uh, Cruise that's coming Chevrolet later. is coming next year. Uh, Mazda is coming with a diesel. I've got to believe you're watching those entries in the market very carefully. Yeah, we're watching very closely. And although that uh, they may not be using the urea injection, the SCR, there's still diesel particulate filters and NOx traps are required. And you know, when we're doing our analysis and we're, you know, pretty progressed on what we're able to do with, with EcoBoost and gas turbo direct injection, we go through those payoffs and we think the payoff's about four times faster on an EcoBoost and the incremental technology and cost versus incremental uh, technology and cost for a diesel application. 
Well, well the uh, Obama, I'm sorry, the Obama, please don't interrupt me again. <laughs> the Obama administration uh, seems to have put all of its chips on electrics uh, versus diesels and other uh, alternatives. So are you um, following uh, along with that uh, path? Well, not only are we following along with it, but we're, you know, investing heavily in electrification. And, you know, it's the key to our strategy is really a power of choice strategy. And we've got great technology in the common rail diesels in, in Europe. We've got great technology in, in our EcoBoost engines. And uh, now we're introducing our Focus electric vehicle uh, at 110 miles per gallon equivalent city and um, six miles per gallon better than LEAF. Um, we're also uh, progressing our plug-in hybrids and the CMAX plug-in hybrid energy that's coming in and the fusion energy. And it's so difficult to predict what consumer behavior is going to do, um, what regulatory incentive is going to do. So when you look at uh, the way we're progressing those technologies, we want to make sure that we introduce them into our mainstream vehicles and into our mainstream platforms. And so depending on what, which way the mix goes, we're really ready to introduce that. We think that's a much more efficient way to do it than dedicated platforms, dedicated plants. And, you know, if the trends don't go that way, you're really, really left with some underutilization. Well, for an electric car, though, a dedicated platform is almost required, isn't it? When you're, when you're adapting an existing platform, you've got uh, weight problems associated with that. Well, not, not if you're engineering from the beginning, knowing that you're going to have to accommodate an electric powertrain in it. And I think the Focus battery electric vehicle is a great example. I mean, it's, it's not a dedicated platform, but we knew going in we needed to protect for the full battery electric powertrain. And, you know, there was a lot of comments that we'd never be as efficient as some of the competitors with a dedicated platform. Um, but I think we've proven that to be untrue, uh, both in terms of performance, in terms of the equivalent fuel economy, and frankly, a, a much better package and much better dynamics. Secretary uh, Stephen Chu, Secretary of the uh, Energy Department, that is, uh, recently admitted he's changed his mind about fuel cell cars because thanks to hydraulic fracturing or fracking, we now have so much natural gas in this country and you can strip hydrogen out of natural gas. And in fact, you can do it in a way where you get some very interesting byproducts like electricity of all things. So I know Ford in the past and General Motors and Daimler and BMW and Hyundai and Toyota and Honda have all said they could have uh, fuel cell cars showroom ready by 2015. Uh, I, I just throw that into the mix of the discussion right now. What, what's your outlook for fuel cell cars? Well, we're doing a lot of work with Daimler. We have a partnership with them and continue to invest in, in fuel cell technology. And, you know, the definition of showroom ready uh, probably varies. Uh, clearly, we've got fuel cell vehicles that are running in demonstrator fleets right now. Uh, but getting those to be economically viable uh, is certainly the challenge. And, you know, how much, again, the customer is willing to pay for that technology, and um, certainly a lot going on with fracking. It's probably uh, probably a bigger emphasis in near term on CNG equipped vehicles, and so well, we're we're offering probably more powertrains than anybody that are CNG capable right now. Well, natural and that's one gas area is, we're watching pretty closely. Sorry, natural gas is a great source of diesel too. I'm a diesel fan. I'm a convert because of what's happened with common rail diesels, mm -hmm. and you know, the Volkswagen passenger car diesels are terrific, and of course the Ford uh, the um, what is it, the uh, the truck diesel uh, in the um, 
F-Series. Yeah, our power stroke diesel. Amazing. That's a terrific engine. Yeah, we're really pleased with, the, with that diesel, and certainly in applications like Super Duty, there's, there's no mm -hmm. replacement. What's interesting, though, at the same time that some of the some other companies are bringing European diesels to the United States, you're bringing the EcoBoost technology to Europe, and and you seem to be positioning it as an alternative to diesels there. I mean, is that a technology that you think has got you know the, the same level of of upside? in Europe for fuel economy that it does here? Yeah, we certainly believe so, and, and depending on the market and, um, you know, the, the, the price per gallon of diesel and, and petrol varies in Europe depending on the market. But we're starting to see, you know, some, some people noticing that the payback on EcoBoost technology, similar to what we're seeing here in the U.S., is, is a very viable alternative. How does EcoBoost, which is a great marketing name, what essential difference is there between that and turbocharging? How is it different? Well, I mean, turbocharging has been around forever, as you know, and direct injection not quite as long, but a lot of advancement. But what we're able to do is we've got a lot of integration technologies with the two that we're really able to do a lot more, both with um, really finely controlling the mixture, which allows us to do different things with the turbo. And we've got, um, you know, quite a few patents around that integration that really make our technology unique. We're seeing a lot of emphasis on transmissions these days. I mean, I remember when a six-speed was really something. Now, six-speed, who cares? Everyone's got that. We're seeing seven, eight, nine, even ten speeds being talked about. Front drive and rear drive, luxury cars, mass market cars. But Nissan has really committed to CVTs, continuously variable transmissions. This new Altima has by far the best fuel economy, a highway number at least, in its class. It's got a very good combined number, too, and I think one of the keys that it's getting such good fuel economy is due to the fact that it's got a CVT. Is, are any of you at Ford or other companies rethinking your CVT strategy? Well, we've had some experience with CVTs. All bad. <laughs> you know, um, and certainly we're looking closely at, at what Nissan's doing, and there are some advantages to it, as well as some disadvantages relative to performance and um, often depends on the size of vehicle you're talking about. So transmissions moving forward is, is a focus for us. Um, when we laid out our investment strategy and what technologies we thought would have a more immediate and, and positive impact and, and cost per investment, um, transmissions were on the list but didn't make the cut as quickly as some of the other technologies I'm talking about like the common rail diesels, like the EcoBoost technologies. So, so are you saying we'll see more uh, transmissions from Ford with more gears in them, or maybe there's even a CVT out there? Well, I think as you walk down the path and continue to have to improve the fuel economy, more and more technologies move up the list as you continue to implement them. Uh, and certainly transmissions are on the list and other lightweighting technologies are on those lists. With transmissions, it seems like w one of the areas where perhaps some of the other automakers are at, at a, an advantage is that they don't have the investment in, in the equipment themselves. So if, if you buy all your transmissions from an outside supplier, when they've got an eight-speed that's ready to go that they sell to four or five other companies, you've got an eight-speed av available to you. Is that you know a, a disadvantage? Is it a consideration for Ford as you try to figure out how fast can we get new transmissions into the market? How do we match what the, co the competition's doing? I, I think we try to balance what we want to spend um, in our investment, what expertise we think we have internally and externally. And um, transmissions is an area that you know, we've got quite a bit of internal expertise. And um, although there may be advantages in being able to be more first movers when um, it's an external investment, you're sharing the technology, obviously. And um, some of the value stream is outside of your control. 
And so the markups that are happening outside of that can influence the cost that you're paying. So uh, we're pretty happy with our strategy. We're pretty happy with the implementation of our technology. You know, the fact that we've got, you know, eight vehicles better than 40 miles per gallon right now, and we're really starting to gate see fuel economy as a reason to buy Ford. Uh, we think our strategies work pretty well for us. Right, you mentioned earlier that Ford is cooperating with Daimler to develop fuel cells. That's got to be one of the few areas I can even think of where Ford is really participating with another car company. While so many of your competitors are going together to do programs or engines or whatever it may be, Ford seems to be going it alone. Is, is that, do I have that right? Is that your strategy and will you continue down that path? Well, we've got some targeted strategic alliances. You know, we still do uh, uh, strategic alliance with Mazda and do some work there. And uh, we've just started a discussion with Toyota on rear-wheel drive hybrid technology. And so when those opportunities are available, we certainly take a hard look. But the key to our turnaround has been really focusing on the one Ford plan. And um, certainly that internal focus and not getting distracted by some of the things that can happen with, with joint ventures and larger partnerships. Um, has played out advantageously for us. And certainly when there's win-win opportunities, we're always open to that type of discussion. But when we get into trade-off discussions, that's when things get complicated and can take up a lot of management time. They can be better focused on the core business. Well, look at what you're saying of the efficiency of your electric focus. And some of your hybrid stuff is awfully good, too. I got to believe that strictly came out of doing it in-house, and you wouldn't have an advantage like that if you were just buying the technology. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've got a great expertise in-house for electrification. We're expanding that expertise and continue to invest in, in the technology and the, and the people in that area. And I think it's played out well for us that we've got plug-in hybrids, regular hybrids, battery electric vehicles, all that are really best in class in their delivery. What, uh, this is uh, tangential, but uh, what is your interpretation of fun to drive and how important is it in future product? Um, I think it's one of our, our key aspects of emotional appeal to our customers. There's, there's the technical aspects that we, we want to deliver in our pillars of quality, green, safe, and smart. Um, but then there has to be that emotional aspect that draws the customer in. Um, bold emotive exterior design is one aspect of it to really draw on those emotional heartstrings. Exterior design, that's part of fun to drive? No, no, I was just okay. commenting on the emotional aspects. Fun to drive is absolutely in there. Um, but we believe fun to drive is, is not necessarily about setting lap times. Um, it is about something that's fun to drive in a really dynamic environment, but it's probably an aspect of a feel of a vehicle that flatters the novice but really rewards the expert. What I try to describe to my guys is you really want that driver to get out of the vehicle feeling like he's a better driver than he actually is. Um, that's, that's very good. So those type of aspects, although the customer may not be able to describe them in the way an engineering, engineering term and an engineer wants to hear, we definitely feel that is tying to their emotional heartstrings about what makes a Ford a Ford. For but I see a lot of, I'm sorry, no, Mark, you keep interrupting this. <laughs> I see a lot of people every day who think they're better drivers than they are, you know, but uh, never mind <laughs> that, about that. But for, for the last few years, though, Ford has pushed the emphasis in terms of performance vehicles on just a couple of models. I mean, there will be a performance F-150. There's the Mustang, of course. You've got the Focus ST coming. Is it something where you think that that should be more widely spread across the, the product line, or do you just want you know, want to go with a couple of models that the performance people 
look no, to? No, I, I think fun to drive is it's in our DNA. It should be in every vehicle that we do. Um, and then we have the performance vehicles, which provide a great halo for the brand, um, provide some uh, great experimentation on the engineering side on what's working and what's not, and bringing that technology more into the mainstream. Um, so performance vehicles absolutely have a vital part in, in our product portfolio. And we've, as you said, we've got some great ones with the ST strategies on, on Focus and, and the Shelby, whether it be the Boss, or the Mustangs, whether it be the Boss or the, the Shelby. And that'll always be a part of our heritage, and it's an important part of, of the, the product development team's growth as well. But fun to drive needs to be in every vehicle. Every vehicle that's got a Ford badge is going to be fun to drive. And, and the ST models, the Focus ST that's coming here, ST is sort of a global performance badge for you. And you use it on more models than just the one in other markets. Mm -hmm. Can we you know, hope to see other ST models here? I certainly hope to see other ST models, but it's probably early to talk about that. But that's another great thing about the one Ford strategy. When we're talking about those brand pillars, when we're talking about the DNA, we're talking about a global strategy. So we now have one global DNA. That's true for our European vehicles. It's true for our Asia-Pacific vehicles. true for our North America vehicles. And same with our performance strategy. When we talk about what does it take to really be proud of an ST badge, what type of uplift are we talking about from the base vehicle, that's a consistent strategy globally and across all the vehicle lines. Why does one Ford work now when in years past uh, there was always a big disparity between Ford products in Europe and Ford products, that, the same products that came here, which were not the same at all? I think part of it was external environment. We're probably seeing more homogeneity in the customer expectations globally. Um, so there certainly there was a period of time where American customers and European customers did have different expectations. But to be honest, it was also we had our own pillars within the company. Um, Ford of Europe, Ford North America, uh, Ford Asia Pacific probably wasn't even Ford Asia Pacific. It was Ford of Australia and Ford of India and Ford of China. And we had to take a hard look in the mirror when we were in trouble. And, and Alan certainly, Alan Mulally, our CEO, certainly forced us to take a look at that mirror. Is this really the most efficient way to run a, a global automaker? And we had to conclude, no, it's not. And uh, we had to go through a lot of um, soul searching and how are you going to do business differently. And it certainly paid off. One of the technologies that I'm very excited about is autonomous technology, where cars can drive themselves. Oh my God! For, well, I, I know you're. Oh. Well, we'll argue that off air, Tony. But Ford has recently announced it's working on a technology it's calling Traffic Jam Assist. Mm -hmm. uh, I note that the supplier company Continental introduced a year ago a technology called Traffic Jam Assist. I got to believe the two of you are working together. Where do you see autonomy going within this decade and maybe then beyond? Well, certainly the technology is progressing very fast relative to automating a lot of the functions you normally associate that the human driver should be doing. Um, and I would differentiate automating those functions from full autonomy. Uh, we really believe automating those functions, you still have to have the driver in the loop um, because the environment is so volatile, it's so unpredictable, uh, that full autonomy for every situation and the type of computing power that it's going to take to really be able to handle that um, and the type of programming it's going to take to be able to handle that is still quite a, uh, a ways off. Not that it's not doable. Again, never say never to an engineer. Um, but we think in the near medium term, automating a lot of those functions is really going to have a lot of leverage in, in, in taking some workload off the driver, um, providing Including an overall steering, safer environment. Right? Including steering, at least to uh, a given uh, speed. 
Yeah, um, certainly the, what Traffic Jam Assist can do uh, in, a, in a set environment, uh, again, with uh, probably not a city environment, more a highway environment, it can assist in the steering, it can assist in keeping the appropriate distance uh, between the vehicle in front, and uh, with that automation, if uh, you know, a fair number of vehicles on the road have that same type of automation, uh, theoretically reduce the amount of traffic jams that everyone would get into. Um, but keep in mind, there's a lot of different environments that we deal with when we're in a vehicle, and a lot of different calculations that our brains are doing just naturally that we're not even aware of. And so we're learning a lot from a lot of the studies we're doing right now. And so there's certainly a lot of promise in automation and car-to-car -car communication, uh, but full autonomy, um, I, I think, has got a bit more work to do before we get there. Bill Ford recently announced that Ford was doing some work with Google. Is that got to do with their autonomous technology? Yeah, absolutely. We're uh, having a lot of discussions with Google, and they're certainly one of the leaders that, um, you know, they've got vehicles running around right now. And um, there is, there is long-term promise there. It's all a matter of time frame of not just the technology getting there, but um, when the regulations are going to allow it, um, when the infrastructure is going to be there, when you achieve critical mass of how many vehicles actually have the vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication available. So there's a lot more work to do there. Uh, but in the near term, we're certainly going to see an increase in automated functions. I can see uh, a lot of uh, personal injury lawyers out there just licking their chops, and I cannot believe that you espouse this. <laughs> that, that's certainly uh, one of the areas that will need to be sorted out, which is why we're really, you know, really still saying drivers need to be in the loop and in command. Well, what I keep telling all my enthusiast friends, and I include myself in, on the enthusiast list, Not is anymore. now autonomy is going to take care of all the bonehead drivers, so the rest of us can go out and really enjoy you just driving on the sit street. Sit there and have the car drive you. I mean, <laughs> what is that? And stop and go traffic. Every time. Is, no. Isn't one aspect, uh, though, that, that's implicit in this? What you said earlier, the number of vehicles that are autonomous. I mean, if you have full autonomy, doesn't everybody have to be right. in that system? Because the one guy who's driving himself is the bull in the china shop in that case. And we need a quick answer. We're down to the very end. Well, I think you're going to have to have a vehicle that's capable of full autonomy without that for everyone to feel comfortable. But to see all the advantages, particularly relative to congestion, you're going to have to have this vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication happening. And with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. Thanks for the quick answer there, Raj. Really appreciate it, and really appreciate you coming That's on the show. That's my pleasure. Tony Swan from Hearst Magazines, Mark Phelan from the Detroit Free Press. I want to thank you guys for being here, too. And I think we're going to have to come back and do a whole show just on autonomy. And I'll even invite you to be on that one, too, I'll Tony. I'll have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that wraps up AutoLine this week. Thanks so much for joining us.